I moonlighted for 12 years. So by day I was an ad exec. And then at night I started off as a dishwasher, ready for combat. For me now, I'm, I did this all for my community, for the world at large, to put Filipinos in the center, not in the outskirts, and have people come to the center. Sometimes you don't know the questions to ask. If you at least just dedicate yourself to the work, the answers will show themselves in a way that you didn't even know they needed to be answered. Welcome back to Vanessa Wants to Know, a podcast where I get to have conversations that move you. On today's episode, I get to sit down with Nicole Ponseca, restaurateur and passionate advocate of all things Filipino food, culture, and people. I was really, really excited to sit down with Nicole today because one of my greatest passions is food, and I'm always so curious about how the food industry, how food and beverage runs. And I really wanted to hear it from Nicole because I think her experience is very unique. One, in that she's a woman, and two, she's a woman of color. Now, the restaurant industry is predominantly male and predominantly white. And the fact that Nicole has been successful in doing this and, you know, opening Maharlika and Jeepney in New York in a time when so-called ethnic food was not really lucrative or even fashionable is a really inspiring story. So Nicole's background is really interesting. You'll hear it in the conversation. She didn't come from a food background. In fact, she was an ad executive before she started going into food and her story of kind of living this double life of moonlighting at the ad agency during the day and then going to work as a dishwasher at night very much paralleled mine in a way because I too did not enter fashion from fashion school or from any traditional path. You know, that story really resonated with me. Now, this conversation kind of goes all over the place at one point, or actually more than one point, Nicole turns the mic on me and like asks me about my life and about the trials and tribulations of my career. And it was a really fun conversation. This is a really, really good one. You're going to laugh a lot. Nicole is hilarious. She also has an incredibly soothing voice. So I'm really excited to share this with all of you. Without further ado, here is... Nicole Ponseca. So let's start from the beginning. Okay. Like, let's start with your origin story. Mm. You grew up in San Diego. Yes. I grew up in uh, San Diego in a suburb called Rancho Bernardo. Okay. There were some smatterings of Filipinos and Mexicans. Right. Pretty much that's it. And then predominantly Caucasian. And then I went to college in San Francisco, right? the University of San Francisco, and I thought I was going to be the next Donnie Deutsch. I really thought I was going to own my own ad agency or run it. Right. I swore I was going to be on Madison Avenue and then I was going to kill campaigns. I loved advertising. I loved campaigns. I loved strategy. Yeah. I loved how at that time a lot of advertising campaigns would infuse fashion and art in top photographers that wove between fashion and commercial. Right. I graduated. And then, um, you know, during that whole time, I was full-time student working in advertising and then working part-time at J. Crew 
or Banana Republic right. at that time. And I graduated on May 23rd. And then seven days later, I was in uh, New York. I had $75. I had no job, no place to live, no friends, uh, no family. There was no internet really then. Yeah, It was really used just for communication. And some little bit of searching. There was a thing called Netscape and this dial-up. And uh, I think I got a cell phone much later, but it was so expensive because it would charge by the minute. So my first cell phone bill was like $1,200. How does one come to New York? with? Se- <laughs> I read that. I was like, $75? Yeah, I came with $75. I scoured Filipino convents. I should say I had one credit card. Right. Not a lot of limit, like maybe $500 at that time. Right. And I did stay in an Econo Lodge in New Jersey off of Newark. It was the kind of place you wouldn't want to look underneath the bed or you'd be curious, is that mine? Right, right, right. <laughs> Gave myself 14 days to find a job. Now I had done all that work in San Francisco, an ad agency since I was a freshman. So I had all those contacts. I didn't want to wait to be a senior to do internships. I knew once I got to USF that I was already planning for New York. So I got here and then all those contacts and bosses, I asked for interviews when I got here. So I already had some of a play. And then on the 14th day, I got all my offers. And at that time, the strategy in campaigns was really still a black and white issue, Mm -hmm. meaning white person, black person, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So where do we fit in? Where does brown, where does Asian, any of that? So I was like, hmm, I wonder wonder what I could do to change that. 21 years old, what can I do to change that conversation? I said, well, I wonder if I could do that with food. Food Network was just beginning. There was no Instagram, you know, Celebrity Chef. Bourdain was just, I think, beginning. His travels. Yeah, it wasn't a thing yet. And so that's why people weren't going to the boroughs to discover food. Right. And they also weren't getting pushed out. But... I, I was like, okay, maybe I'll try that. And I was so scared because I knew that restaurants had a 90% failure rate. Well, I didn't want to leave my day job because that pays the bills. Because you're a good Asian. And I'm a good Asian. Yeah, I uh, was reading. Semi-good. Semi, me too. <laughs> I think like there's so many parallels in both of our stories, mm-hmm. right? Like you went to school, you worked at one of the biggest advertising agencies in the entire world. Mm-hmm. But then there was still something, you know, there was like, there must have been some voice being like, "Mm, this is great, but like, I think there's something else. Yeah, I would lie awake listening to Mariah Carey and Bone Thugs and Harmony. Oh, I love. (laughs) Breakdown. I love that song. Tears and just like, I know I'm supposed to be doing something. I Mm. know I have a voice. I'm going to get lost in this corporate shuffle. Yeah. They don't even see me. I'm not one of the boys I don't drink beer. I'm not hiking my skirt up, you know. So I thought food, and I moonlighted for 12 years. So by day, I was an ad exec. And then at night, I started off as a dishwasher, ready for combat. Right. And in the day, it it was Ann Taylor and Suits at the time. You literally were living a double life. That, again, is another crazy parallel after... I graduated from school. I worked in biotech. Okay. And I literally, during the day, would be at my office, this 
biotech company that was selling uh, technologies for stem cell research, like super wild stuff. And then I would like creep out of the office after work. I would change in the women's bathroom and like exit through the fire stairs or whatever you call them. So I could go like take photos for my blog and then I would go home and like edit the photos. I mean, but 12 years. Damn, girl, that's a long time. Yeah, people always remark on um, 12 years or just time that I was willing to commit the time. But I didn't see there was any other way. I was so jazzed to just do it. Yes. And so myopic. I didn't hang out with friends a lot. You know, they were that time renting shares in the Hamptons or just out there drinking and hanging and dating and camping. I mean, I look at some of their photos a little forlorn because I realize those relationships that they have now, they fostered in their 20s and they just have a different understanding of each other that I don't have. But sacrifices come and I don't feel like it was too big of a price to pay for my ability to express and change the world with Filipino food or change the conversation and and inspire. I felt so committed to it. I think this is really extremely compelling. And I think it'll also be a solve to people who are kind of going through something that we both were going through in our early 20s where we're like, okay, we have all this stuff going on, but this is not really what I want to do. And you have to make sacrifices. Mm -hmm. You also have to really get really quiet and listen to that voice. Mm -hmm. And also you may not have the answer, but listen to the question. Am I happy? Do I want to be here? Is this what I'm about? Am I about a high salary, great boyfriend, stem cell, good city, (laughs) you know, okay with being a semi-good Asian? Or am I I meant to do something? And that something may not be in the level of what you've done or what I've done. It could be a different definition, but the idea that you would actually question a predestined route. You are like a living example of the almost labyrinthian path that we can take mm-hmm. in our lives and that mm-hmm. you can you can't tick the right boxes and still like, you know, start creating your own voice and realizing what your true purpose here mm-hmm. is on earth. Because I think just by reading about you and listening to you that you have carved out, you know, more and more year after year, your true purpose to be here. Everything on my business plan back then, I checked off. I said I wanted to be the first commercially and critically successful Filipino restaurant. I said I wanted to serve mainstream audience, but hold down for Filipinos. Yeah. I knew what I wanted to do with the book, but, you know, that was uh, 20 years in the making, the cookbook. So I'm a long-term player. I'm into it. (laughs) I definitely have been long-term. But now at this corner, I am asking myself, what is it that I want to do next? I really did everything that I wanted to do. Right. And the book is now nominated for a James Beard Award, which is Bananas. So for the for the uninitiated, can you explain what the James Beard, James Beard a- Award is? Yeah, James Beard Foundation is like the Academy of Arts and Sciences for the food industry. Like the Oscars of, yeah. of the food industry. Yes, it's the high, one of the highest honors, if not the high, arguably the highest. Right. And it will do everything from saying best chef of the year And so our book is nominated for Best Cookbook of the Year. I'm delighted. You know, 
my only ask was I wanted the book to be featured on CBS this morning. They're like, that's the only thing. That's it. That's it. The only media. And I said, yes, I love the rapport of the reporters and the people who watch CBS this morning. I knew if we had got on that show that it would begin to be mass appeal. And everything I really did was because I wanted my community to have representation. I never thought it would be about, oh, I'm going to be the, the baddest bitch, you know, yeah. a restaurant person. It was, how can I push my community forward? How can I strip the ideals of colonialism? How can I undo the ideas of colorism, broaden ideas about where the food is from, and even introduce the idea that we are Chinese, Mexican, Spanish, and Muslim? Mm-hmm. Not even a lot of Filipinos know that. Right. In fact, the first bite of Filipino food that anyone really truly probably has is likely from Chinese origin, lumpia or pancit. That's Chinese. Can anyone articulate that? And if you don't know where you're from, how could you get to where you want to be? For me now, I did this all for my community, for the world at large to put Filipinos in the center, not in the outskirts and have people come to the center. This is our party. You're welcome to join. But now I'm like, what next? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I could come, you know, and use this platform just to show the book. But I would like your listeners to also know I'm trying to figure out what is the next step for me, not just for a community. Like for 20 years, I have put a restaurant, a business and a community before me. And that's I think I'm not sure how your journey is now. Do you correlate completely that? Is it you first? Is it, you know, like, I, I would love to learn from you. Like, I kind of started, like, my own spiritual journey. And I'm like, why am I here? What is the purpose of my work? And no matter how I twisted things around or tried to validate my work, I'm like, I mean, I love it still, but there's something. I, there's now a new voice. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like, you're asking yourself, well, what's next? So I had that that same realization where I was like, I need to have a good reason. I need to have something that's truth-based to keep me going. And I evaluated all the things that I did. And I was like, well, you know, I want to continue doing this, but there has to be something I can contribute like yourself. I mean, from your your mission from the get-go, it, it appears is to give back to the community. And when I first started, I was just like, well, you know, here I am making like beautiful things, doing this and this. But then I started realizing I need to find a way of giving back. I was working with this brand during Fashion Week and I I literally had like a nervous breakdown because I was like, oh my God, what the fuck am I doing? I can't be doing this. I can't be working with this kind of brand. And I was like crying in my bed and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to share all of my passions. I'm going to share stories. I'm going to share my health and wellness. I'm going to riff on things that I love. And really use it as a vehicle to transform people. Mm. It took me, you know, another year and a half to really ruminate on it and be Mm. like, okay, well, this is what I want to talk about. And this is the type of guest I want to have on. And and now here we are. So what does that do for you now? You've identified, okay, it's not, it's beyond the platform of Insta and it's the podcast. Being able to dimensionalize who you are through food and wellness and fashion, like how does that feed you? What does that provide for you? I would say like that gives me sustenance, right? Mm -hmm. That's one part. My work is one part of my life. The other 
great part of my life are my spiritual practices. You know, those are the things that ground me, my meditation, my yoga practice, my mantra practice. I wouldn't be sitting here before you if it wasn't for those things. I've only started doing that. Um, my mental health is probably the utmost right now. Where are we? We're in April. Mm -hmm. So in June, July of last year, it was really dark for me. It was I don't want to use the word suicidal so flippantly, but, you know, it was so dire to call my mom mm. to be like, I'm not well. And you would never call your mom to say something like that. Especially to, to an Asian mom. No. That's like the last no. thing you want to do. Yeah. yeah. I was also like, please don't tell any of my friends because I don't want them to be worried. I'm telling you because I just don't know what to do right now. I'm so scared. Homegirl, of course, told all my friends. Of course. <laughs> and I was like, bitch, I still cannot tell you secrets. <laughs> like, your mom's like, um, hold on one second, okay? <laughs> you, like, hear her texting your auntie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's like, something is wrong with Nicole. Um, so therapy has been instrumental. But um, the spiritual practice, I, I find that I'm um, a toddler. And I think you're friends with Veronica yes. Lumbo. Yes. And she's been so patient and kind. I, I came to her to talk to her about it because I just was like, I, I just don't know what to do. And she would come over and she did acupressure and right. we did yoga and just those little moments of caring that someone would extend care to me. I was like floored. And if someone, like a friend, what more can I also do for myself? It's been wild. That that's almost a year ago. I think we all go through these moments where you do, you really have to physically, spiritually, mentally hit a wall. It's a great opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. And we're both lucky to have people in our lives who can be instrumental in helping us through it. The reason why I'm sharing it now, I mean, I haven't, I don't really talk about that, right. but... If there are listeners out there in Asian Americans or from wherever you are, that struggle in an Asian home is very real. And uh, I, I can't even really explain it to someone who's non-Asian. It's, it's about shame or, or, or hiding shame. It's achievement and all of those uh, external ways of making sure that you're good wear out, yeah. especially when you're in tune to something spiritual. So it, I want your listeners to know that, you know, what if you are struggling, that it's, dare I say, normal, but to be expected when you have an understanding of a universe or a question, you know, but the spiritual practice can keep us at least joyful, in tune, positive attribution toward lightness, you know? Okay, so I'm going to really backtrack now. Okay, okay. We're going to go back. Okay. What was the first restaurant then that you were working in? You said when you were like washing um, dishes. Do you, um, is it still around? No. It's, okay. it's called uh, Colors. And Colors was uh, one of the only co-op restaurants in the world where the, the restaurant um, employees also owned the restaurant. And they were all the survivors of the World Trade Center uh, from 9-11. Oh so wow. it was all of these people from everywhere from Haiti to Guyana to Bangladesh. There was me, Filipino, and I learned so much from them. They literally, some of them didn't make it to the building. Some of them were in the lobby and ran out. They were able to get out. And this restaurant was dedicated to restaurant workers. It was dedicated to equal pay, better living wage, minimum wage. 
So I, I, I would not necessarily have had access or our paths may not have crossed had I not done this job. And then I also learned the dignity of working in the kitchen, how easy it can be to not be looked at. It really humbled me to different life experiences. So you were there, yes. and then you and then you moved to different yes. Yeah, so I types was at of Colors. Job. I went to the Soho Grand. I went to the Tribeca Grand. Um, I was a host there. I went to the Mermaid Inn. I was a manager there. One of my first big jobs was with this woman named Estela Quinones, uh, who had a restaurant in the West Village in Tribeca. She was whoa. She was tough on me. I, I right. remember crying like I was fucking up big time. Right. Wineless and organization. Right. And then I wound up at Juliet in Williamsburg, which is on North Fifth and Bedford. Yeah. That was my last stop. What year was that? Two thousand seven. Okay. Oh, and I worked at Lola. That's where I met Chef Miguel. Right, right, right. And he saw me literally crying in a banquet. Like, I was pissed. I could not find that chef. If right. I if I found out about you, I would take a bus to Montclair, New Jersey. I would knock on the door. Hey, yeah. are you Filipino? I heard you're Filipino. I have a dream. My name is Nicole. I want to do a Filipino restaurant. Are you really interested? I think we could do this together. I think it'd be really big. I think Filipino food could be the next big thing. Mm. No. No. Not And it was no, no, no. I was so frustrated that Miguel was like, well, why don't I give it a try? I can help you. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're not even Filipino. He's Dominican. But we, we really got to learn a lot about each other's cultures. Right. He came to the Philippines. We did a backpacking trip. He studied with me from the most northern to the top. We hitchhiked. We motorcycled. At that time, again, internet wasn't there. There wasn't the resources. So we would literally just hop on dilapidated buses, like farmers. We'd be like hanging out windows. Yeah, I know those buses. I've yeah. been on a few of those yes. myself. And I, I love them. So at what point were you at Juliet then when you were like, okay, I think I need to really pursue this food thing. I so, think maybe this ad agency job I need to put on, put on the back burner. When did all of that happen? My last gig, um, I left advertising and I was working for Partisan Entertainment with uh, Michelle Gondry, who's this renowned director. And uh, Juliette hired me and it was astounding. I was like, whoa, I didn't know GMs and restaurants could make six figures. So I was able to leave the ad gig. And then I really worked at these jobs as if I owned them. I owned that restaurant mm. in my mind. I uncovered everything. I treated the staff like they were my staff. I, I looked at the numbers because I, what I realized is no one is going to shepherd and hold your hand and say, this is how you do it. You have to look at every experience as if you're the owner. So I was tired of trying to find investors. No one invested in me, woman, person of color, Filipino food. There was no track record. So there was a restaurant in the East Village that was not open Saturday and Sunday brunch. I approached the owner. And it turned out to be the owner of Juliet. He owned the oh, same really? restaurant. And I said, can I use the space to do a brunch just on the weekends? And he was like, what are you going to do? I said, Filipino food. And he was like, what is it, Filipino? <laughs> we used to call each, ourselves a limited engagement because the word pop-up had not started yet. Okay. You decide, okay, I'm going to start doing these pop-ups. Yeah. And then you met Miguel. So, so gosh, uh we meet in 2007. He says, yes, I'll join you. We start working out of my um, apartment in Williamsburg on South 4th. Every weekend we would practice food and cooking. My dad flew out and also taught him. Your, dad's a, your dad was a chef, right? In the He's Navy. a cook, line cook. A line cook. Yeah. We practiced for two straight years before we even served one person. If I met you and I found out you liked food, I would turn my living room into a restaurant. The outlier 
you know, from Malcolm Gladwell and the tipping point were huge um, inspiration for me to, to understand. You have to put the hours in. We practiced that for like another year, just serving on the weekends in my apartment, practicing, practicing, practicing. Then we approached the restaurant and said, could we use it? Just as a side note, the guy I was dating in 2002 said, you should do a restaurant there. And I was like, that's the most beautiful space. They're never going to give it up. That was the space we wound up doing the pop-up eight years later. So cool. We research, we research, um, people start joining us. And then the first weekend, dead, four people. I, I have to pay the waiter $100 out of my pocket and I comp the food because they're like my roommates. Second right. weekend, dead again. Third weekend, I don't know what happened. It hits a press. There was no Instagram or anything then. And I look out the window, my nose pressed against the window, my fingertips against the door, and I'm looking around the corner and there is a line in the dead of winter in January. And I was like, oh my God, do you have enough food? <laughs> they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, there is a line around the corner. I, I have no idea. We're like, get out of here. And then Topher came to the window and Chef Miguel were like, oh shit, it's on. It is on. And from there, it just, it just took kind off. of took off. It took off, yeah. It was electric. People knew that they were witnessing something. And what kind of people were coming? Were they like Filipinos? Filipinos, Christians, like- fashion. A lot of fashion Filipinos were there. I call them the uh, Silk Mafia. So it was like. Oh, I love. Is that what you call? Yeah. Okay. It was, it was like That's Marcus great. Teo and Rafi Totenko and uh, Rax Laksamana, like these. Stylist, fashion designers, and Peter Som was was part of that group. There were pockets. There was fashion and music, and people were just like, "Whoa, this is happening! We are eating our food, right. and now you get to be in a space where there's music and a vibe." It was. I we all knew we were part of something, and I don't mean that just as an owner. I mean that as a Filipino American. Right. Yeah. That must have been super exciting to go from literally having to comp your friends because no one came to having people line up outside the door. And then how quickly did you start thinking about having your own space? So we were kicked out about three months later and the owner then started doing a Polynesian brunch. And that was really insulting to, you weren't ever open. If my, if my ego is attached to it, it was like, you just can't switch Asians and then think that it's like the rotating door. Yeah. And so, I mean, that didn't last long. And we went to the meatpacking district. That was a lesson of timing and demographics. People were like, oh, I didn't know that the quote was peasant food would be here in the meatpacking was at this restaurant called Five Ninth, which I think now is Serafina. Right. They actually said peasant food. Yeah. Oh, we I, we were faced with a lot of interesting comments deeply laced with race. We got a phone call once that said I'm I'm sick. We have food poisoning. Now as a, as a restaurant person, you know that if one person's sick, you're going to get an onslaught of calls because we cook in batches. But when we began to dig deeper, Zoe took the call. She's awesome. If Zoe listens today, the person said, "Yeah, we got food poisoning in because your chef is black." Oh my gosh, did they actually say that? Yeah. It seems so jarring and it's oh, so insulting to say it out loud, even to your listeners. It's an insulting comment and it doesn't seem real, but I'm saying it because it is real. Right. And it's undeniable that these kind of comments existed and were so like openly said as if to say, oh, you, oh, you right. Let me, let me fire right. the chef or I'm so sorry that we would have a person of color cooking. It's just ridiculous. 
And something that I read that was really interesting and that I want to ask you is that Filipinos make up the second largest Asian American populations besides the Chinese. Yeah, 3.8 in- to 3.2, I believe. So why don't we have more Filipino restaurants? So here's the deal. When I started this journey, I had to figure that out. I had to answer that question, why Filipino food wasn't out there. If you have Chinese food, Thai food, gaining popularity, Vietnamese to that extent, why not us? We speak English in the Philippines. Yeah. We're the second, as you said. Um, we're ranked as one of the highest educated and highest gross income in America, Filipinos. Within our that demo, we fought for the U.S. military. It just didn't make sense. So... This commentary is particular to that time and era when I was doing the research, but you can hearken to colonialism, the idea that our food isn't as good as yours. It's called hiya, or ingrained that balut or a blood stew is somehow too weird. That flies in the face of Spain and Morcilla and Brits with like blood pudding, you know, so... You really had to be strategic with the menu items that we put on. And I never dumped it down. I I purposely would put balut as the first item on the menu to be unabashed, put a stake in the ground. It was different then. Also, we were not championed to be entrepreneurs. I think our parents take the biggest risk to leave their country, to leave their friends and family and safety, that the last thing they want any of us to do is face a risky job. So restaurant, who and why would you? Why would you work that that's not an educated, quote unquote, mm-hmm. position? And then lastly, being in food and being a chef was not sexy up until recently. So now there's this onslaught of chefs and this mad rush of, of restaurants. And it, it'll be eye opening because it's a hard business. Okay. So you go from your pop ups, yeah. they kick you out. I'm in a cafe in the East Village. Uh, we're talking about it. We're putting out in the universe. Someone, I say, we want our own restaurant. Guy walks by and says, I've got a restaurant in First and Seven. I'm not using it. It's closed. We take a look at it on a Friday. On a Monday, we take it over as a subleaser. We That's repaint so it. That's so wild. Yeah. And then on Monday, we open. So it was very non-traditional. We didn't have an investor. We really just came in as a subleaser and paid the rent for him because he was not cutting the rent. How many tables was it? Seven plus eight tables in the back. It's tiny. It's about a 40-seater. Right. It's definitely time for a tune-up. What do I want to do with it? What Chef Miguel wants to do it? We're trying to figure that out. You know, it's time. You know, do we we move? Do we do change the menu? Like, it's a great time to kind of um, reflect. And that was... Maharlika. Maharlika. Yeah. yeah. So where, where does the name come from? My boyfriend at the time would question, you know, Filipinos are named after King Philip. Who would you be if you weren't named after a colonizer? And then I would do research. Some wanted Maharlika to be the new name of the Philippines, the really? warrior class. For me, it's Sanskrit. And the, in the Tagalog language, it, it's rooted in Sanskrit. It means noble work, Mahar, and then Lika. Jeepney came afterwards, and five blocks passed. Right. When you opened the first one, yeah. what was the response like? The first table that came in were Caucasian, and my first two menu items were balut and adidas, which is chicken feet. And I remember people asking, why are you putting that on the menu? And I was so scared then. I was like, why the hell did I put that on the menu? And then that was the the thing that they ordered and ordered another round. It was gangbusters. It was packed. It was packed. A Wednesday looked like a Saturday. It was still electric. People were like, what is happening here? 
Filipino food. It, it was so youthful too. It was it was a spin on the environment, but the food was old. The food was what we had always eaten, always had. So you had a taste of something familiar and then something very fresh. Yeah. Very spring. And then Jeepney opened. Yes. And that was about a year later, right? It was about a year later. It was like an accidental pregnancy. We weren't <laughs> looking to open another restaurant. There was a Filipino couple. They were my parents' age. That was the first restaurant they had ever opened. They just had a dream. And so I walked by. I said, you know, this is a pretty tough business. If you need my help, just come ask me. And they were like, I don't know who you are. I'm like, I know, you know, I'm the girl down the street. I know you've been like, I'm not your competition. Like, it's a hard business. You're like, I knew they were like in their 60s or 70s. And they used their retirement money into the restaurant. And they didn't come back for three months. And they said, yes, would you take it over? So I negotiated. I had all my creative briefs. So all the ideas that did not work within Maharlika's creative brief, I saved in like um, lookbooks, clipping, sketches. And so that born Jeepney. It was the antithesis of everything that didn't work for M, which was meant to be more feminine, more of a bistro. Jeepney's directive was really unabashed. It should be loud, obnoxious. It should be a Jeepney. It should feel very rock and roll. It should feel a little bit dangerous, you know. And it was fashioned with steel walls. And we did all that with 80K. The average restaurant cost about 500000 That's so wild. So that included a gut, reno, and then whatever materials we could. I mean, even today I look around, I'm like, oh, God, this is like, it's a cheap sink. Or I mean, I, I'm not the restaurateur right now in that execution that if I had the funds, I would totally revamp. Maybe that's the next iteration for me. We opened during Hurricane Sandy. And um, what I realized in points of disaster, people will still eat, but they may not go to someplace new. So Maharlika was still doing great. Jeepney was dead. And I was like, how am I going to do this? Put my head down. And then I was like, why am I here? I'm here to change anything that I was embarrassed about and make our culture proud. So I remember being really embarrassed of my dad eating with his hands. So I said, what if we put like banana leaves down? Because I knew they do that in Hawaii and like a luau. And then Kamaya Night was born. It wasn't a, we don't eat like that at home. It's, it's not. Like, it's like a celebratory. It, I mean, we just, my dad will just eat rice with soup and just eat with his hands right. at, the, at the table, one leg up or like Asian squat. It wasn't a thing. I wanted to make it a thing. I wanted to honor it so that I remember being embarrassed when my American friends would come over and see my dad slopping. You know, I was like embarrassed. This is the Asian experience, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's so cathartic to talk about it with a fellow Asian because even for your very like woke Caucasian friends or friends who aren't Asian, it's hard to to really relay that story and for someone to understand it. When I was growing up, my grandfather cooked mostly for us. And my grandfather would always cook these crazy, elaborate stir fries, you know, with like a lot of garlic. And he was a chef of the family. He, had, he owned restaurants when he was in China. You know, here I was with like my lunch um, with this crazy like beef stir fry and like rice and maybe pickles. And like my friend next to me would have like a peanut butter and jam sandwich. Or, or you know, something <laughs> that you, you get from like whatever grocery store. Yeah. I have very mixed feelings. I mean, it makes me really sad because when I was a child, I was like, oh, 
whatever I'm eating is bad and it's below what this person to my left is eating. And they would be like, ew, like, what are you eating? And whether I understood it then, it was, I mean, that was probably my earliest experiences of racism Mm -hmm. where I understood, okay, there's an otherness to me and I need to hide that. It would almost be likened to being biracial in a way. We have two parents the parents that give us birth and the, the parents that um, is our environment, which was... That's a beautiful way to put it. Thank you. Yeah. I wonder, do you think that there's still that struggle now that boundaries have been broken with food? Do people... I don't know if that still relates. In fact, it might be more like, oh, what are you eating? Versus, yes. ooh, what are you eating? Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> changed. I think, especially with the advent of whether you love it or hate it with Instagram and mm-hmm. with all of these digital platforms that we obsess over now. I mean, food is one of the most viewed things, mm-hmm. right? On Instagram, people love to see what you're eating. And also, like you mentioned earlier, there's this huge chef culture now. Mm-hmm. Everyone just wants to be super chefy. They want chef knives. They want... <laughs> the clothes, they want the ingredients and whatnot. So I I think in that sense, we are making progress with food. And again, this is why I've devoted season one of this show to Asian excellence, because I think we need to share our stories. And this is for Asians, for non-Asians, for the initiated, for the uninitiated. So we can really have like an open conversation because everything Mm -hmm. is so PG now. It's like, we can't say this word or we can't do this. And Um, How do we approach um, interracial um, issues and whatnot? I think really where it starts is we got to be honest Mm. about what we're doing Mm. and about our experiences. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I do want to talk about your your restaurants a little more because you started, did you know at the very beginning, you know, were you like, I'm going to change this whole conversation about what it means to be Filipino? Yes, but I, the... The words I believe used were, my job is to change the course, to change the conversation on Filipino food. It was a job. So I hired myself to do it. You're so practical. (laughs) Well, I knew it because that was my job and I was going to succeed at my job. I was going to kill it. So again, the resources I knew from advertising the copious amount of hours, my ability to be myopic, my ability to be um, so focused that I could sacrifice hang time meant that I was going to get an A. I was going to. You're like, uh, no matter what, I'm going to be on that street. I am going to be on the dean's list of failure was not an option. Failure was not an option. Just the act of pursuing it meant I was succeeding. Being able to pull from strategy, from what was going on in the food, knowing that there was a void, everything was aligning. Sometimes you don't know the questions to ask. If you at least just dedicate yourself to the work, the answers will show themselves in a way that you didn't even know they needed to be answered, you know? And I think that kind of honesty and authenticity in my intention it unfolded. There's no way. I mean, it's now almost 10 years to look back on that press is shocking. We never had a PR agent. So now, you know, restaurants come and go. And, you know, I don't know where the story will land in the bigger scheme of Filipino food now. But at that time, it was groundbreaking. So 
You opened the door, I feel. I think the restaurants definitely kicked the door open. I think the restaurants did its job. You know, I remember working in French and Italian restaurants that we had to be trained to know the grapes of Bordeaux and how to pronounce. And so it was also ingrained into the staff that they had to respect the food, even if they weren't Filipino, so that a Filipino dined and started poking holes at them, you know, like pin drop holes. Like, do you know this? Do you fucking know this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you. That they, they did. So the, it was it was um, credible. I did not want it to be fluffy. Yeah, superficial. That could die very quickly. For sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you now about like the, the business part of creating those two restaurants. Are you basically the one putting together the business plan and like pulling all of the assets you need mm-hmm. to come into place to open a restaurant? Is that you? Or do you have someone else that's helping you with that? I'm just trying to pick your brain on. Yeah, um, it was yes, me. That's so all it you. Was, yeah, it was the business plan. It was putting together the financing, the budgeting, the quick change ideas, the, the, the sharp pivots. You mentioned pivot. Like you have to be very nimble. Yeah. To be able to turn on a dime to say, this isn't working. We need to pivot right now. And also have the research in your back pocket to know the answer. You might not know that that is the answer you're going to pull out, but because you have done the homework that you know if something doesn't work, you have an encyclopedia of ideas to pull. I was in charge of HR. I was in charge of the final decisions on the food. I helped shape where the cuisine was going to go with Chef Miguel. I would say the the shepherd and making sure, too, that if Miguel had any holes poked at him, that he could say how to pronounce it, where it was from, what was the origin of the dish, how it was made. You know, it's very clear to me that you want to come? You want to come after me? I got the answer. And then ultimately, if it still wasn't for you, I'm cool because I'm I'm so confident in my homework. Because, like you said, you're gonna ace it. You're gonna be <laughs> you're gonna be on that dean's list. Yes, I'm gonna do the work, and I'm not gonna phone it in. When you started being like a woman, being number one, a mm-hmm. woman yeah. and a woman of color yeah. in an industry that's dominated mm-hmm. by men, were you scared when you entered that space? How did you approach it? In my own restaurant, I did not feel that it was as prevalent. I was very cautious of the staff that we hired and very cautious of company culture. Did I feel it elsewhere? I never knew that which bathroom that I would choose would dictate my success. So it was a hard <laughs> lesson to learn when um, later years it, it was apparent. Um, people would say, oh my God, you're the best host, not knowing I was the GM. Vendors would come and I'm very cool to talk to them about fixing the toilet or the refrigerator. But if they found out it was a woman, so is the owner here? Bitch, I'm the owner. You're like, you're I looking am at the her, owner. honey. I am the owner. Yeah. It happens in ways that are very insidious, that people don't know their own sexism. And that can happen to our generation as well. The systematic idea of what a woman should talk like, be like, what it means to be in charge, even the idea of what it means to be in charge. Are there different forms of that? Can you be soft and in charge? Can you be super feminine and in charge? Do you have to go on the directal missile in order to get things done? Does that backfire for you? Does that leave you in a space where you... You, you can't cultivate a, an intimacy, a closeness with your staff because you have to be a part. It's different. Men don't have, don't nearly have those many questions to ask of themselves. Okay, so to end, we 
we want to ask you some fun questions. Okay. All right. So if, if I want to add some condiments or add some things to my kitchen repertoire, let's just say like Filipino condiments, things that we all must have mm-hmm. in our fridges that are going to change the game. Mm-hmm. What are some of them? Number one, I would ask for you to get a Filipino fish sauce. Patis. Okay. I would like for you to get two kinds of bagoong. What's One, that? Bagoong is our fermented shrimp paste or fish paste. It's similar to like, I think, belacan in Malaysian cuisine. I would like for you to get an anchovy bagoong and a shrimp bagoong. So there's a lot of fermented fish. Yes. And I would like for you to get pinakorat. Not any vinegar, but pinakorat, a special type of spiced vinegar. Um, what is it spiced with? It's, can be ground chilies or garlic, but it's sometimes typically made with coconut water. So it's fermented coconut water. And the flavor is beyond. It's so great. I mean, I could do any litany of like ube or banana ketchup. Wait, what's uh, banana ketchup? Banana. Okay, so that's number five. So banana oh. ketchup is, it is a condiment. It is a sauce made from bananas. And it wound up being called ketchup because uh, during the 40s when the U.S. military came, it was likened to tomatoes, ketchup. We don't have a bevy of tomatoes, so we make a sauce from banana. It's It was questioned whether or not we made it for Americans or whatever. I'll leave that up to the historians. I think we always probably had it. We had a plethora of bananas, so let's make a sauce out of it. I'm yeah. into it. Yeah, it's really good. Get the spicy one. Okay. Yeah, and eat it with fried chicken. Okay, this is this was the next thing. So I'm I'm actually vegan. Are you plant based? Okay, I'm plant based, but I want I want to ask you if I go to Jeepney or Maharlika, yeah, what can I order that is plant based that you would recommend? So I'm working right now on a vegan bagoong. Oh my god, yes, so girl! Instead of shrimp or fish paste, it is a fermented black bean paste. To, to oh, make. I love that. Yeah, that stuff is so good. So imagine that sautéed with garlic and onions, and then steeped with coconut milk. That is a Filipino sauce. You can do that with cauliflower, and then you have a version of bicol cauliflower or ginataan. Okay, amazing. I feel like we can talk forever. Yeah, I think we already did. I know, there will be a part two. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so that was my conversation, my marathon conversation with Nicole Ponseca. I really love talking to her. You can find Nicole on Instagram. Her handle is in the show notes. Make sure to give her a shout out. Let her know that you heard her on Vanessa Wants to Know. And if you want really authentic, delicious Filipino food and you are in New York City, make sure you check out Maharlika and Jeepney or maybe check both of them out. Maybe go for lunch one place and go to dinner another. You're not going to regret it. And of course, send us your feedback. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And wherever you listen to Vanessa Wants to Know, make sure you rate us five out of five because that is just going to raise the visibility of this pod and get us into more ears. So again, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Vanessa Wants to Know with Nicole Ponseca. Thank you.